Welcome to Beyond Sunday. My name is uh, Todd Neiswanger. I'm the lead pastor at Cornerstone, and I'm sitting here with, I'm going to reverse it this time, Ooh. Christian Burkhart, Hello. who's one of the pastors here on staff, and also uh, Spencer McCush, who's the president of EBC. And a member at Cornerstone. <laughs> he's, he's a pretty, Still a part of Cornerstone, man. a part of Cornerstone. We appreciate that. And uh, what's really fun is, is with Beyond Sunday, one of our hopes is, is that obviously we'll take a lot of the things that either we are teaching or that we're engaged in within Cornerstone and to take them away just from the ideal to really bring them into the practical realities of life. And I think the best way to land that is always within the context of a local church and not only a local church, but I think relationships are the place where those things are supposed to land. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And we took a little bit of a hiatus. We we had uh, Christmas break, and then uh, I got I got COVID. And everybody that has said I had it for a third time, this is not the third time. It was the second time uh, about a year ago. And so finally, coming out of quarantine and uh, all the Along different with breaks, uh, probably about sixty percent of our church as well. <laughs> yeah, coming exactly. Out of it, everyone so. else coming out. Of, we're gonna have robust antibodies. Oh my man. goodness, man, it's gonna be incredible. But. Um, we're excited to start uh, start talking about something new today. We'd been talking about the mind, and now we're going to be talking about Paul's letters, both to his first one to the Thessalonians and his second one to the Thessalonians. So I'm excited to talk about it with these particular guys, and I'm excited how it's going to land, hopefully, in your life as you have relationships within Cornerstone. So let me see if I can set the stage a little bit for us to have a discussion and why I think this is important. I know as a pastor, when I was thinking about and when Christian and I were mm -hmm. kind of praying about, man, where, where should we go next as we're trying to engage our particular local church within God's Word? I think there were a couple of things for me personally that stuck out about First Thessalonians. One is just the positive nature of it. I mean, mm -hmm. the worst thing that Paul says about the Thessalonians was, you can do better. You can do more. Do more and more, right? I mean, that's basically, in, in many ways, in First Thessalonians, what he's doing there. Instead, he's just telling them in a really powerful way who they are as followers of Jesus. And so when I was looking at it, I think in some ways, just we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. And so that became a huge part of it. Yeah, there very much is a, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, there's very much an encouraging tone in it. Oh, highly encouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. And 20 years ago, I think I read it and I thought it was a lot more of a, like a, a, a corrective tone. But reading through it recently, it's like, man, there's there's a lot of encouragement here. Yeah. I think even when he kind of has to bring in the idea of death and and Jesus's return mm -hmm. and, and the day of the Lord, that still isn't, it's still meant to be highly encouraging right. uh, to them and what they're, what they're wrestling through. And I do think like just Cornerstone, we as a church, we need to be encouraged. And so I was excited about that. Yeah. Um, I was excited to dive into a letter that I think really does address a group of people that are trying to sort through life. And I think we're a church coming out of a lot of different things where uh, we'll talk about in, in the second week when I preach, but sometimes our perception of what reality is, man, is is not true. And we talked about that with the mind, right. is that the mind, those lenses by, by which we perceive and interact with the world and God can be skewed. And I think Paul has to come in and remind him in First Thessalonians, regardless of your perception of how things are going, here's truth and specifically how they were interacting with the world and, and God. Right. So as you, th thanks for giving us a context for like why, why you guys chose to like go to first Thessalonians or the letters to the Thessalonican church. Um, 
it's always helpful for me to go like, okay, what's the, but, but I guess the, for this, like when you kick things off, like, what do you see, what do you see right out of the gate for Paul that like, what is he doing? That's actually relevant in the beginning. Like whether it's kind of in the background stuff for, for the letter or whether it's in the first couple of verses there that you would say is, is really helpful for our like conversation today. Let's yeah. Say. Well, what I want to get to is I really do think his overarching theme, which I've already brought up, is is Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about what that means. But I think hope, like I think hope is a strong uh, kind of motif that he throws through this particular letter. He finishes every chapter with talking about the hope that we have in Christ in some way, right? So you think that's relevant for today. And where I see that is in a hopeless culture, (laughs) right? Like, because it is, don't you sense that? I mean, I feel like that, not only in the unbelieving world, but I think even within the church, this just sense of hopelessness, this sense in which things aren't working, it's failing, it's it's falling apart. You have a thought, Christian. Yeah, no, I think there's there can be a hopelessness, but I think hope is always tied to an object. It's always tied mm-hmm. to what's what's. And so I think if if there's a sense of hopelessness or pessimism or just skepticism that we see pervading our culture and even the church, um, the question isn't just how do we drum up hope, but how do we find a better object for our hope? Because, 100%. because yeah, if your hope has failed because you put your hope in something that could never have delivered on what you were hoping it to do in the first yeah. place, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's more to say, okay, now let's find the proper object for that hope yes. that can't yeah. be shaken. And I think what Paul does in a very powerful way in First Thessalonians, he, t- he tells us what the object of hope is. Mm, yeah. And specifically, we're going to look a lot at verse 3 today in which the object of hope, which is so important to what he's talking about, is in Christ Jesus before God the Father. And I think like for all of us, right, we, to your point, we tend to get hopeless because the objects of our hope keep, keep undermining our hope, right? Like we, we place our hope in things that just aren't solid. Mm -hmm. And he, he brings in the biggest possible thing that he can, God himself and says, here, let me, let me give you hope. Yeah. So would it be fair then to say like, I'm just trying to like, capture this all into like one little, you know, pithy statement. Would it, would it be fair to say, like, the reason First Thessalonians matters for us at Cornerstone, because, you know, in, a, in an age or in a, in a time when there's fear, skepticism, cynicism, doubt, uncertainty, you know, just kind of a fractured sense of like how things are working, you know, there's just despair and, and frustration we need to be people of hope. Yes. Yeah. And that's why it matters. And and, I, and and specifically to Christian's point, and and not just hope in general, but but a hope that's anchored in the person and work of Jesus. Amen. Right? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what I'm looking forward to talking about. I think you're I don't think it was pithy. I don't know. What does pithy mean? He used the word I don't know. I just <laughs> I remember uh, learning, finally. There you go. <laughs> I remember learning about pandas. People always say it, but Isn't I don't that what pandas they open the bamboo and they eat the pith? <laughs> they inside? eat the pithy. So I just thought of pandas. <laughs> what, is, what does pithy mean before we move on? I'm not gonna dignify this any longer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Translation. We are, I don't know. I don't know how I don't know. We are excited. We are excited to talk about hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ before God the Father and why that is in a time in which people are asking, where's the hope? In a time in which people have put their hope in things that are cratering and falling down all around them. 
we have the greatest message ever found in the person of King Jesus. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. All right. Well, if Paul is trying to convey a message of hope to a kind of broken, despairing, kind of hopeless situation or circumstance, how does he get there? Like, help, help me understand, or help us all understand, I suppose, kind of the context with which he is writing, or maybe just jump into chapter one and kind of unpack that a little bit, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah, well, grand picture, let me just say this. The first part of it through chapter three, he's going to recount their story in many ways, which we'll we'll talk about more as we go along, but he's going to actually tell tell their story, and their story actually finds its foundation in God, which we'll talk about the next week. But I think one of the coolest things in the world to remember is that in order to understand why or how he was bringing them to hope, you have to understand Acts 17, what took place, right? While he was preaching a message, obviously the, the way in which he got kicked out with Silas and they got taken to Berea and there's this guy, Jason, who gets left there and he has to pay this amount of money to be able to, you know, to, to be able to say, okay, I've, I've got this. I'm the one who's who's got it under control. If you don't mind just me interrupting real quick, just just in case somebody might not be familiar with Acts 17, could you just give a, a real brief, like Acts 17 is Paul where? Well, you've got, in this particular case, I'm talking about Acts 17 when he was in, in Thessalonica, right? He goes on and we find him then later in Berea. We find him in Athens. We we keep walking. walking yeah, because it's Acts is, this, this part of Acts is telling the story of where Paul was. Yes. And so by this time, he's now come to Macedonia, right? He had the vision of the Macedonian saying, hey, Paul, come over here. And him and the guys, they get on and they 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 go over to Macedonia. And one of the places that they land is in the chief city of Macedonia, which in many ways was 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 re- re- referred to as the the main the main town of Macedonia because of its huge port, its its connectedness to the Via Ignatia, the road that goes all the way to Rome, is that really in a lot of ways, that's where they're at. They're up in the, the northern part of what we would call Greece today, mm-hmm. not Macedonia, but where it's Thessaloniki, that's what it's it's called today. But mm-hmm. way up in the northern part of Greece, that's where they landed first into Europe to begin mm-hmm. to share the good news of Jesus beyond beyond Asia. Mm-hmm. And so there they are. And, and I think what's so cool, what he reminds them of is in verse one, he reminds them, it's, it's from me. I was one of the people that came amongst you in Acts 17 and preached this message. There's this Silvanus, which is Silas, who was also with them. If you remember Silas, Silas was the guy that Paul and him were in the jail together. Mm-hmm. They're singing hymns, right? And there's a huge earthquake. That's the Silas that we're talking about there. And then there's the true son of faith to Paul. There's Timothy. Mm-hmm. And what's so cool about it, and what Christians can, I think, get to unpack even more, is the context of this is of three guys that truly love this group of people. Yeah. There's a true love here. And so, yeah. again, the, the context of hope, he's going to make sure that they understand, hey, we we love you. He's going to use, I was like an infant. I was like a mom. I was like a dad. I mm-hmm. We're a family to you and their yeah. love for them. And so as he's setting the context, I think this is really important to the reality of hope, is that hope apart from its connectedness to love is, it just doesn't jive, mm-hmm. like tr- the hope in there. But in all of it, like verse one, he's going to make sure from the very beginning where their hope lies, what Christian brought up a second ago, it's, you can see it in verse one, in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where their hope is. They're a church that is that, that's truly founded on them. And so he's even coming into this letter, they would have had all this history. They would have had all this understanding. 
And here comes Paul into this letter and he says to them, hey, grace and peace to you in, in this in the starting off of it off. But what's fun about it as he moves along and kind of reminds them is the very first thing to your point you talked about earlier. He really has this idea of thankfulness off the very front end of it. So you have this sense of a, a group that loves him, but like his whole prayer is is in, it's encapsulated just in his thankfulness for what God has done and what he's going to do. I think in the first few verses, to your point, Spencer, of what is he doing? He's going to make sure God gets at the forefront of everything. Everything's going to begin with God. Right. He's going to make sure that this hope that they have, back to Christian's point, is cemented and it's grounded not in these things that come and go and the things that 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 are insecure, but he's going to bring God right into the very midst of it. So right away in verse 2, when he starts encapsulating his concept of, of thankfulness that he's bringing to bear for them, his whole point is, is I am thankful, and you, you can see in this, to who? Well, to to God. Like, it's at the very front. Right. No, I think you're you're doing a good job of, like, getting to Paul's kind of, uh-huh. um, kind of the, the heart behind it. And yeah. I think that's awesome. Um, but what, and I don't know, either one of you guys, because you guys are both, like, putting time into this. What's going on if we said the goal that he's trying to write is, is instilling hope into these people with a sense of gratitude where he's thanking God for them. But what's going on in the city? Yeah, I mean, you you talk through Acts 17 and you go, okay, so Thessalonica is up north and it's this key city and Paul was there and he's with his kind of band of, you know, church planting, you know, comrades, if I can use that word. I don't know if that's appropriate anymore. Um, (laughs) You know, whatever. (laughs) But... um, but what's the nature of this? Like, what's going on in Thessalonica yeah. that they needed hope? Yeah, well, and that's what I was, I was trying to I don't know if either of you guys... He brings in this big picture of God. And I think the reason he's bringing in the big picture of God is they had lost hope. And probably in some ways, when you look at the rest of the letter, they were hopeless. They had been facing uh, persecution from the very start. I mean, the moment that Paul leaves, our boy Jason, who is kind of the patron of the group... He ends up getting at the forefront where they come to his house. They're dragging people out. He's he's facing a difficulty as he's moving forward. Uh, Paul leaves, and Paul's going to talk to them about that they're experiencing deep persecution. What I mean by that is not just persecution. They're, they probably weren't getting beaten, and they weren't, you know, facing like physical ramifications, but they were losing family. They were losing friendships. They were losing jobs. They were just there was a downtrodden feel to it that by the time you get into where Paul's trying to empathize with them in chapter two, their very own country people that he's talking about there, they they'd lost that. Yeah, no, I I, I hear you. I th- I that there's a there's the need to bolster them up in a in a in a new hope and a new identity because they. They had lost an old one. I think it's like if yeah. like, I love what you say saying there in verses um, one and two and three that this this centeredness on God. He's saying this is who you are now. This is what we we're trying to root you in is this new orientation around God around Jesus Christ. But that's because there's a parting of the ways that has happened b- between these Thessalonian Christians and the rest of the Thessalonian people. Yeah, and I guess maybe could you speak a little bit more to that? Like if Paul is trying to center them on God, how does that differ from like maybe what? what Thessalonian life was centered on at that time. Yeah, well, what I, was, what I was pulling this towards was is that all of their life would have centered around their household, so mm-hmm. their family, mm-hmm. 
it would have centered around the the people that were patrons to them, the mm -hmm. ones that that paid them, kept them. Um, the 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 feeling within the culture of Thessalonica was this way in which they were a, a true Roman city. They were a free city. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they came in preaching, not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And they would have been absolutely like Paul was ostracized for declaring that, that mm -hmm. Jesus is Lord. They would have been ostracized. And in a very cool way, I think the reason he's bringing it in is to your point, to remind them of their new identity. Mm -hmm. They may have lost an old identity, but Paul's point was, but you have you have received the better identity, the greater identity in the person of Jesus Christ, and now a part of something new and wonderful and beautiful that his, even when, by the time he gets to verse three, the reason he's thankful, I saw this come to life. Mm -hmm. I saw it in you. Um, we'll talk about it next week, but it wasn't just that I saw it come to life initially. I'm now getting word back from Timothy. Oh my gosh, you guys. Your new identity has shaped you so much that there is around all of Macedonia, they're talking about you. Mm -hmm. That's how incredible this is. But I think that they had lost that sense of belonging. And in that disconnect, Paul is reminding them, though, in coming to Jesus, they hadn't lost anything. Mm. They are connected to the person of Jesus. They've received a new family of brothers and sisters. They have a father mm -hmm. in God the Father. And I think like that hope component of it that he builds around the family field, which will be interesting when you get into mm -hmm. it in a, in a few weeks. Yeah, chapter two, yeah. I think that is huge. He's giving them a hope that while it felt like everything was lost, their perception, they truly did have a place in which they had, they had landed with that new identity, a new family. I think that's that's so important because the, if there's a if there's a perspective shift in these letters that Paul's trying to help them see, I mean, you've got this probably com in comparison to the rest of the city, a rather small little group of new believers who have this grand new identity, but yet from from everything they can see looking around them, they're they're the odd ducks out, yeah. right? And it feels like it's falling apart. The rest of the city with this like this central focus in their identity is Romans. They have the whole power of the the greatest empire the world had ever seen at that point behind them. They're tapped into that. Who the heck is this little ragtag bunch of Christians in comparison? And I think to your point, Paul's trying to say, no, no, no. Like greater is the one that's with yeah. you than all that. You're not just anybody yeah. because of the person of Jesus. And I think what Paul then does when he comes into verse three is remind them, I saw it in you. And he uses these three ways in which I saw it. I saw it in your work. Mm. I saw it in your labor. And I saw it in your steadfastness, which again, he pulls out. That's a the words that he uses there in Greek that he pulls out is, I saw your exhaustion. You worked tirelessly. I, I saw you stand firm under such difficult circumstances. But he doesn't laud those things, which is so fascinating in their identity. Okay, you just you just emphasized interest. I look at verse three, and I think a lot of people would be tempted to look at like faith, love, and hope. And you just emphasized work, labor, and steadfastness. Yeah. Well, I think that's what he saw. He saw work, labor, and steadfastness. But he wanted them to understand, and this is where we got into this idea of a subjective genitive, a <laughs> and, and we talked about it this last week, and I know it's it's, it's a it's a word that we don't that's, throw around a lot. That's grammar for those non. But when he talks about like especially that first one, the 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 work of faith, it's not faith's work, or it's not. It, it really means faith 
that produces work. That's kind of what a subjective genitive is. It's, it's telling you the main idea is faith and what faith then produces or what it demonstrates or, or, or what comes out of it is this idea of work. And the same thing with love. It's love that produces labor and it's now hope that produces steadfastness. And it's those three words that Paul or Paul uses, you see it all throughout the New Testament of generally it's faith, hope, and love. Mm -hmm. But you can tell he's teeing up hope big time here and he's going to leave it at the very end. And he's saying, look, I saw those things, but listen to me. They, those, those things that I saw with my eyes came from faith mm -hmm. and they came from love and they came from hope. But what's so cool off the tail end of hope, and again, this brings us back to what I said, he's going to constantly push God to the forefront, specifically, you're going to see now in and through the person of Jesus, is that where that hope came from is that it's found in Christ Jesus before mm. God the Father. And so this hope that he's going to lay out for them that's so powerful is he says, look, I came amongst you, and I think that's why he says in, in the, to the Corinthians, I preached Christ. I made sure that Christ was at the forefront and Christ at the forefront came hope and love and faith. And now following those are work and labor and steadfastness. In other words, I don't have to pursue work and labor and steadfastness. I pursue Christ. And I think it's that whole thing. We seek him and his kingdom and all these things will mm. be added unto you. Yeah. The person of Jesus becomes the forefront of who he's pursuing there. Yeah, and just to be a reminder, I guess, He's not calling them to this. He's thanking God because this is what is evident in their lives. He's yeah. affirming what's Yeah, he's already affirming already there. there. He's not, yeah. and so, yeah. And I think this comes back to perception. Whatever their perception was, here's truth. Mm -hmm. Here is what truth is. And I think like now, as we kind of move into how this lands like into our lives, I really do think what he's, what he's really going after though is that this truth is always found first and foremost in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's who he's going to laud. And I think that's where the, the highlight of this, these, these little first three verses really, really come to bear. Okay, so let's, let's, let's land this a little bit, because mm -hmm. I think for me personally, and as we talked about this together, I think one of the toughest issues for us is truly keeping our eyes on the lordship of Jesus, right? His greatness. To to your point, and you guys weren't here a second ago, but Christian just said, oh, it's like he is the one who gives this the right perspective when all these other kings and kingdoms and everything around us. And Paul is just, he's calling him back. No, no, keep your eyes upon Jesus in what you're doing. And so let me let me just say this, because we know what was going on there. They we're, we're going to find the word Lord uh, that it's this Greek word kurios uh, 25 different times throughout the book of of First Thessalonians, which means this is a pretty important word to what he's trying to to clamp onto on who Jesus is, and <clears throat> specifically, I mean that the lordship that they would have been most recognizing was the lordship of Caesar mm -hmm. and the way in which the government and the empire was going to be the one that was going to rescue you and take care of you and provide for you. And so much even of the concept of, you know, Roma and the idea of Rome is we're the great provider. We're the ones that are going to give you peace and prosperity and wealth and all these other things. And all of a sudden Paul comes in and goes, I know that's where your eyes go, but hope has to have a focal point. And if our focal point is in these wrong things, it's going to fall apart, but it's in Christ, which is what he wanted. 
Now, all of a sudden, right, we're going to have the right hope that we're supposed to have. So maybe, Christian, why don't you speak to a little bit of just in your, maybe your own personal life. Like, how do you kind of, how do you either keep the Lord Jesus Christ at the forefront? Where do you struggle? Mm. Um, yeah, maybe just land that a little bit for us, if you could. I know, right? That's a, just that. Just that. Yeah. How do I struggle with all of this? I think, I think like, like probably a lot of people can relate to. I mean, the, the, the fact that we can, if Jesus is Lord, if he is king, if he is the one, as Paul says here, who is before our God and Father, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven at the right hand of God with everything being put under his feet. If that's real, the hard part is I can't see it. But I can see every time the president of the United States gets up to give a press conference or to make a decision. I can see when the uh, county health officials issue new mandate. Like I can see and, I, and in some ways can feel sensorily the impact of those authorities sometimes in a way that, dare I say, feels more real than the kingship of Jesus ruling at the right hand of God. And I think that right there to like, um, I think about what I was just looking at it when, before you asked me the question, what Paul says of himself in 2 Corinthians 4 of like this, this need to look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient. They're, they're passing away. They won't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. I think it's that sense, at least for me, it starts with going, okay, I don't want to ignore what I can see and sense and interact with in this world, but recognize this has a timestamp on it. This will only last for a certain amount of time. And what is is more real now and will be absolutely real and much more easy for me to interact with sensorily when I'm with Jesus made new in his presence, like that absolutely is the more real, even if it doesn't feel that way. And I think just that is a starting place for me is to go, okay, Jesus, help me to believe and to live like your kingship is more real and shaping than the things and the people and the voices that I can see and hear more, more regularly, you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that that's the hard thing, right? Because he he does when he talks about in verse three, in the Lord Jesus Christ before God the Father, he's ushering him into the throne. <clears throat> yeah. And right, it's almost like an, an Isaiah moment in Isaiah six, where he's everything's kind of going on around him, and he's trying to figure out what's what's happening and what are we supposed to do. And all of a sudden, when he gets ushered into the throne room of God, everything becomes super clear, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he obviously falls to his face. Where I'm an unclean man, makes a group of people with unclean lips. But there's just this side of it where maybe Spencer, you can talk to this. Like, how do we even keep? our mind in that throne room? How do we keep our minds thinking through King Jesus at, at truly before God the Father? I could tell you how not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> follow me. That's how I feel about parenting. If you, if you follow me and do what I do, probably not going to be good. If you do the exact opposite of me, you're probably going to be close to Jesus. That's kind of, no, but um, man, I, I was just thinking what Christian was saying and going, man, I, there's, one, I think it's important to understand, like right in verse one, like Paul starts with this idea of, of being before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And going that that word Lord, 
it's a weird word. I know, I know you said it's, it's really important to understand it because he uses it, what, 25, 25 times mm-hmm. in this book. Um, and we use the translation in English. I mean, it's the Greek word kurios, but, but in English we translate it Lord, but that's not a normal word in the English language for us right now, 2022, Simi Valley. So what word would help us understand this better? Because none of us use the word Lord in our everyday language. So I don't know, what, what, what word do you think would be actually be more helpful or accessible to us here now? And oftentimes I view him as King Jesus, mm-hmm. right? That's probably the closest, but we don't have kings. We don't really right? use that word either, right? We've rebelled against kings. Oh, and- and I, I, oh, I will say, I think that that's a huge part of it because I've encountered this so often. One of the fundamental ways that we as American Christians can get tweaked in our understanding of God's authority, of Jesus's authority over us, is that we are, the only way that we know how to interact with authorities is with this framework that says, you have power because I give it to you. Mm-hmm. The power belongs with the people. You ruled by the consent of the governed. And to wrap my mind around the fact that God does not rule because I consent to his rule over yeah. life. He is king because he is king. Yeah, because and that, he created it and he's ruling over it. Exactly. And I just have to recognize that's a foreign concept for me. Mm-hmm. So if I try to understand Jesus's kingship over my life, in the same way that I think about government authorities and things like that, that's why I don't like using any sort of right terms of that we use for those kind right. of leaders. It's he 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 rules by right of who he is, and by especially Jesus rules by right of his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And if those things are true, then he has the right to rule. Right. You know? So so to answer your question, I struggle. Because first and foremost, I struggle to wrap my head around what does it even mean for Jesus to be Lord? Yeah. That's not his name. That's actually a title. It's a position. It's it carries Hello, with what? it some. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and going. And so we we have to st- I have to start with there. And I struggle with that because I don't want to give absolute authority to Jesus, which is his rightful authority place, anyways, but I struggle to acknowledge that and then subsequently give my allegiance to him. And so I mean. So I struggle right off the bat because so that's kind of confession 1.0. And then like 2.0, if you get into that on the, just the normal things of life is it's if Paul's saying, hey, here's who Jesus is as the absolute Lord, authority, master, creator, king, you know, all those things. Okay, that's where he's going. But then he also then talks about the faith, hope and love or faith, love and hope because he emphasizes hope there. To Christian, your point earlier, I get caught up in the felt side of things, experiential mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. absolutely. But but it's the tangible, like sometimes it's at like a societal, governmental, political level, but then sometimes it's even more like at a practical level of like, hey, you know what? It's still experiential. I can see the dollar signs in the checking account. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Everyone, I feel the angst and tension with family members. Um, I, I feel the friendships of people that I used to know who, when I start to acknowledge Jesus as king and absolute authority, and I'm giving my allegiance there, that creates a weird sense of... Um, relational tension with some of my friends Mm. that I grew up with or guys that I knew 20 years ago who would still claim to be religious, 
but man, their allegiance to Jesus and my allegiance to Jesus look very different. And so there's a relational tension. And so then I have to choose like, man, am I, anyways, it just gets really weird. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It gets hard though. I think what you're saying is like, when we think of the Lordship of Jesus, we could put it out as this conceptual understanding, right? Of something we read in maybe a fairy tale Mm of my Lord, you know, there Mm -hmm. is my Lord and we're going to go, you know, bow down to him. But it seems to be like the reign and rule of mm. Jesus. And it's not just in the grand things, but you're talking about the reign and rule of Jesus in the small little things of my life, right? Like him him coming to bear within how I do make decisions and how I, how I think through the world and operate in the world and parent my kids and have my marriage. I mean, it's this idea of seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father as the rightful ruler of all things, the one whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, is intended not just to be like a, hey, I'm saved thing. It's intended to work out in every facet of life, which is hard. Yeah, yeah it's it's really hard. And then for me, I mean, we've, <clears throat> we've talked about this before of going, I struggle because I go, well, if Jesus is the king, and in his kingdom, we care for the marginalized or we care for those who are oppressed and we care for those who are, and, and just trying to think through, wow, do I care for the oppressed? And whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's the, um, you know, special needs community or the orphan, the widow, you know, racial oppression, all kinds of oppression. Do I care for the marginalized and the oppressed? And when I start speaking up and giving voice for those people, because I think that's who Jesus cares for as mm-hmm. well, then that creates tension. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know, it just, it creates, it's becomes so hard sometimes. Yeah. But still, that's like, that's just normal everyday life, right? It's not- I know, this, but it's hard. No, <laughs> but that's, I think that's when, when we keep it. And I think this is where, when we don't allow the reality of Jesus before the right hand of the Father to work its way out into every facet of our life, it just becomes this, this thing that we can kind of talk about. Mm -hmm. But if we really want to see the power of God come to to life in us, where we see what Paul talks about, where we see work and we see labor and we see steadfastness, it has to land into every fabric of our our lives, Mm -hmm. how we make decisions, how we engage in those that God has a heart for. Um, Multipliers, which I think that's what's so difficult. I think what's, what's so cool about this, there was so much last year in our preaching whether it was going through first peter or even in our uh, series on the mind where we kept looking at the example of jesus and especially in the letter of first peter he holds before us the example of jesus's sacrifice on the cross that's our shepherd on the cross who bore our sins and he set an example that we should follow after him right and i think that in some ways that one lands pretty easily for us because we're we're if you've been in the church for any amount of time, the idea of focusing on Jesus's work on the cross, we're used to doing that. And it's glorious to remember the sacrificial, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus for us on the cross. But one of the things that's been so impactful to me as I read the New Testament, here in First Thessalonians, Paul and Colossians, the Hebrews, basically so many of the letters in the book of Acts, the, the The picture of Jesus that the apostles in the New Testament keep drawing us back to is not just Jesus on the cross, but Jesus at the right hand of God, Mm -hmm. Jesus before our God and Father. And just that sense, the, the, the shaping image of that. Okay, when I think of Jesus, do I think of him right now sitting glorified, enthroned at the right hand of God? 
okay, what impact should that have on my life? I think even for myself personally, like when I was a college student, I remember um, uh, studying the book of Colossians and being in Colossians 3, where Paul says, don't set your mind on earthly things, set your mind on the things that are above, because that's where Jesus is at the right hand of God. And then he goes further and he says, you died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. If I want to know who I truly, really am in my in the way that God looks at me, he sees me in Christ before our God and Father. And even though that's hard for me to wrap my head around, I'm, I'm thinking in my life, what are, what are actions, what are habits, what are even, dare I say, rituals that we can do as God's people that remind us and help us to rehearse this identity as people who are in Christ, who's before God the Father? How do we do that regularly as we gather, as we talk about, set our focus on this idea of Jesus as king, exalted at the right hand yeah. of God? Because we have plenty of things. Okay, the Thessalonians had plenty of things in their life in Thessalonica that would help them to remember that they live under Caesar's rule. And in the same way, yeah. we as Christians in California have no shortage of things that help us to remember that we live under the authority of the government of the United States of America. But if the rule of Jesus as Lord is more real than that, then we need things that will regularly help us to remind each other this is who we are. Which is so important. Like I <clears throat> I think like to your point, the way that that it's worked out of the the grand victory of Jesus as he sits enthroned and rules above, you can't read the New Testament without seeing that oh over and over and over again. And I was even thinking the other day when Stephen is dying and he looks up into heaven, what does he see? Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. And I and for me, the more I've studied First Thessalonians, you remove Jesus from the right hand of the Father, you lose hope. Yep. If Jesus is not right now enthroned before the right hand of the Father, then Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, would say, we have, we got nothing to hope in. Yeah, there's nothing bigger than Caesar then. Yeah, we probably should focus on Caesar. Yeah. yeah, we probably should put all of our eggs in the basket of the government of the United States of America. But if Jesus is Lord at the right hand of God and Father, this is all transient. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the stuff that we see that's passing away. And so then how do we serve our king and serve our neighbors in the way that we live here? Yeah. So how, so one of the ways in which I think like we have to do that is to, to, to make sure that it keeps before us, right? Mm -hmm. We need each other, um, whether there's the, the, the symbolism of, I think the Lord's Supper, mm -hmm. re, it, it calls us again, right, to the Lordship of Jesus. But maybe from a, a practical standpoint, what are some things you guys do on a regular basis that really does help keep? The, the kingship, the lordship, Jesus before the Father in your mind. Like, obviously, I'll take the easy one. <laughs> uh, we can't read God's word, right, without seeing it, seeing that reality. But maybe what are some of those tangible things that you guys do or that others have done in your life that remind you of it? So, like, uh, another illustration, I remember one time I was kind of at a low point <clears throat> uh, in just how I was, where I was in life. And Spencer, you came in. And you repeated this one word just over and over and over and over again. And you kept saying, shaking your head as if, no, you still don't get it, right? And, you'd, and I'd be like, no, I get it. And you'd say, no, you don't. Like you were, you were, you had grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and you were not going to let me away 
until like I got the point that King Jesus was enthroned, right? Mm -hmm. So there's one aspect that, you know, I guess Spencer truly believes that the kingdom's brought in by force, but um, (laughs) but maybe what are some other things you guys do to keep Jesus truly remind yourselves of that? And you can't say that I'll tell you what not to do. Like, what are some of the things you do? (laughs) Well, I think... I think the beauty of relationship with other spirit-filled people, right? Because you can't practice. I mean, it's all of the one another's. Like you, if you're if you're losing on one side this this experiential um, identity that you were talking about, Christian, of going, man, I, I am a you know for these people in 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 Thessalonica, um, man, they were they were their identity was as part of Rome and mm-hmm. that was shaped their family and their business and their commerce. And those were all real felt things. Um, and that all is something that this new identity in Christ is, well, now there's those things aren't there anymore. So who are my new people? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who, who am I with? Who, who are those people who, you know, are my, whether you say family or not, but it's who are my people mm-hmm. and, and where is my identity rest? And, and so I think you have to be in relationship with others. And I found myself, I go off the rails in all kinds of ways if I'm isolated. Mm-hmm. And so I just need others around me because they remind me of my identity. They remind me of my calling. They remind me of, you know, um, they point out blind spots in my life. I mean, I just, all the different one and others come to bear. So I don't know, for me, that's the kind of- Yeah, our, being around our family beckons us to our father. Mm-hmm. To our chief brother, you know, Romans right. 8, 29, right? The one who was the the, yeah. the the first to come. Yeah. So it's that reminder issue. Yeah. I, I do think like when you talk about the one another's um, and the like, this is a place for me where like the discipline for myself and my family that we will seek to be with our church family as frequently as we can. It's not about like trying to have perfect attendance for Sunday service or things like that. But it's like if our adoption into the family of God means that our brotherhood and sisterhood together with other believers is an eternal reality. I want to invest in that now. And I think there is just something about regularly being together with God's people that helps you remember this is who we are right now. But if this is something, if, if interacting with your church family, whether, whether on Sunday mornings or in a community setting or something like that is something that you do when you can, when it works, when other things don't conflict in it, it will be hard just out of the the force of habit to regularly identify yourself with God's people if you're not regularly with God's people. And so at least for me, I go, that's one thing where I say, man, I want to make sure that my church family stays high on my priority list just because I need the reminder that this family is where I belong. Mm -hmm. I think on the flip side, something for myself, and this is hard. I've, I've had a hard time communicating this and sometimes in ways that doesn't across, come across to certain people as anti-patriotic. I would say in the things that we do in our culture that do seek to reinforce our identity as Americans, I always try to keep in mind that sense of this is temporary. The kingdom of Jesus is eternal. So when certain songs play that we stand and we put a hand over our heart, okay, this is good. It's a beautiful melody. And yet I want to remember, Jesus, I live under this kingdom or as a part of this nation under you as my king. And I want to be a blessing here, right? It's sometimes just that, that mental trigger for me, that Pledge of Allegiance, National Anthem, um, 
God bless America. God bless America at the baseball game. You know, it's I'm proud that, to be American. It's those kind of things where I go, okay, I am not in any ways have like some weird uh, like bone to pick in regard to those things, but just to go in these moments that are calling me to remember and reaffirm my identity as a citizen of this nation. I want to say yes, but I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God first and foremost, and that will last forever. And that's actually what's going to help me be a good citizen to this nation. Mm -hmm. You know, so sometimes it's just that those mental triggers to say, let me think beyond this. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. Like, even it's funny just sitting here right now talking with you guys. It's like sensing that I needed that. Mm. Like, I needed you guys to just even in our discussion right now, remind me that our, our king, he sits enthroned and he is before the right hand of the father. Angels are worshiping him right now. And I think whether we're talking about the right hand of the father, he is, he is truly the one that is building his church. Mm -hmm. And it's happening even when it doesn't feel like it. And I would say this, I can't wait for the day that he returns where he presents us before the father and, and we've, everything is fulfilled. So thank you guys so much. Spend a little time talking about First Thessalonians as we get it off and going. For all of you that listened, glad you were you were with us today. Thanks for joining us in Beyond uh, Sunday. And my prayer is is that as we looked at these amazing truths of Scripture, the ideals of them, that you're able to take them like we were, and out of those relationships found inside the context of the church, that you land them and live for our great King Christ Jesus today, in this week, and in the coming weeks. So God bless you all. We'll see you. Bye bye.